It is always a good time to talk about how to investigate powerful people. For one, the work can be extremely taxing. It was a good nine months that I basically had no sleep. You know, I was still running my paper. I came home every night at 11 o'clock at night, and I had a bunch of questions to answer to people all over the world. It can also come with a cost. It was probably the first case in modern Ukrainian history of orchestrated black PR attacks on the journalists who, who investigated the president. That was Rita Vasquez from Panama and Vlad Lavrov from Ukraine, two veterans of the Panama Papers investigation. Both spent months investigating some very powerful people. Both also got a first-hand look at how solid reporting can be overshadowed and ignored in the aftermath of a major investigation. On this episode, Rita and Vlad reflect on the struggles they faced while participating in the largest whistleblower leak in history. The lessons they learned are important for anyone in any country who cares about holding the powerful accountable. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. A quick Panama Papers refresher. In 2015, a German newspaper was leaked 11.5 million internal documents from the Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca. Some of the documents revealed that many powerful clients from all over the world were using Mossack Fonseca to set up offshore companies to evade taxes, fund illegal arms deals, pay bribes, and commit fraud. There's been a lot of great coverage since the first stories broke about how the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists organized hundreds of reporters from more than 70 countries to sort through it all. But here's a question that didn't occur to me until recently. What would it be like to report on the leak from only a few miles away from Mossack Fonseca's headquarters? So for me, it took about 15 seconds to realize that scope of what we had in hand. There was um, all kinds of information and all kinds of documentation backing up that information. So uh, at the end, um, I knew it was going to be devastating for the firm. That's Rita Vasquez, assistant managing editor for the Panamanian newspaper La Prensa. Before she became a journalist, she was a lawyer who dealt with offshore companies, so she knows what she's talking about. Rita's work and the work of her team at La Prensa was unique for two major reasons. For one, Rita's legal experience made her a go-to person for any journalist who needed help. It was a good nine months that I basically had no sleep. You know, I was still running my paper. I came home every night at 11 o'clock at night, and I had a bunch of questions to answer to people all over the world. And by the time I was getting ready to go to bed, it was 2 in the morning, and it was already daylight in Australia or Finland or um, Europe, and I was getting calls. There was also the issue of the investigation's name, the Panama Papers. When that title was first floated by ICIJ, Rita objected. Because I said, we're talking about one law firm, one practitioner. This is not what the offshore industry in general is. Income in Panama doesn't come like other jurisdictions in a high percentage from the offshore industry. 
Panama has a lot of other sources of income that make their economy grow every year. And this is not even 1% of the economy, the offshore industry, so why call it Panama Papers? The reason ICIJ gave was that major decisions regarding these clients were made in Panama, which is true. But another reason is probably this. The name the Panama Papers is just really easy to remember. We came up with about two or three different um, names for the project, but they were not taken into consideration. You know, it was just a couple of us. So at the end, the majority decided that the name was going to be the Panama Papers. I get her frustration. I'm from San Diego, and if one food truck in Ocean Beach started selling bad fish tacos and the ensuing investigation was called the California Killer, yeah, I'd probably not love that either. The reporters and editors at La Prensa came up with a compromise. We have never used in our stories the Panama Papers title. We call it the Global Investigation. During the months they worked in secret, Rita and her team discovered there weren't a ton of Panamanian citizens in the data, which makes sense. The whole point of establishing an offshore company goes out the window if you choose a law firm down the street. But they still found important stories that hit close to home, including one Mossack Fonseca employee who discussed helping a client evade taxes in the U.S., an employee that Rita said had previously been an advisor to the president of Panama and at the time held a position in the president's political party. So I think that's pretty big. Yet when they published their findings, a lot of citizens blew right past the wrongdoing they uncovered and instead zeroed in on the name the Panama Papers, even though it wasn't appearing in La Prensa. So in Panama, a lot of people were offended by the fact that they were using the name for an investigation related to one particular law firm that doesn't represent the majority of the Panamanians. So most of them were <clears throat> accusing us of uh, choosing the name of, or participating in the name uh, selection or agreeing to the name selection or um, voting in favor of the name selection, which was not true. There was also a more insidious rage directed at the reporters, a rage almost every journalist can recognize. There were people that uh, thought by us participating within this project, we were not being loyal to our country. Uh, it was nationalism, basically. So right after that, uh, yeah, we had a, a security, private security. We never really felt our lives were in danger in terms of somebody was going to kill us here. But, you know, you had a lot of um, rage within the society. Our faces were published in social media and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we were easily recognized anywhere we went. Now that we're approaching the investigation's one-year anniversary, Rita's optimistic that people are starting to come around to the fact that Panama's offshore industry needs to reform. She also said there's one big thing she wished she would have done differently. I would have invested more time in training everybody on the offshore industry prior to the launch of the investigation. She's talking about the other journalists who worked on the project. I think a lot of people would have uh, definitely appreciated some more training at the beginning on not necessarily everything because that's impossible. It takes years of uh, studying and practicing and reading for uh, lawyers to become experts in the subject, but at least the essentials would have been good. There's a lot of journalists that thought that some of the information there was a scandal, but it's just common practice. Not necessarily that makes it bad or good, but it's not something that it's exclusive of Panama.
She is left, however, with one lingering question. Who was the original whistleblower? We don't know who was the person who leaked the documentation or the data to the journalist in Germany. So we don't know who John Doe is. The source wouldn't even reveal themselves to the first reporters they leaked the documents to. It's still a mystery. It's a little bit working in the, in, in the shades, you know, um, because you don't know what are the motivations, that the real motivations that the person had. How did he get the leak? Why is he doing this or she? You know what I mean? Over 6,000 miles away, another journalist was also looking for local connections in the leaked data. His journey was both very different and very similar to Rita's. I believe it was summer 2015. This is when they approached me to join this project. That's Vlad Lavrov, a staff writer for the Kiev Post in Ukraine. Vlad is also part of a regional group of investigative reporters called the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He'll refer to them later by their acronym, the OCCRP. When Vlad was given access to the database of leaked docs, he immediately searched for the name of one very wealthy, very famous man, Petro Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine. Poroshenko's name immediately popped up. Frankly, I could not really believe what I saw because we knew that he had a business. We knew that he was elected as a multimillionaire. At some points, his assets were valued close to billion. But what was amazing about this and most shocking is that the company was registered after he was sworn to the office, which is a violation of a lot of Ukrainian laws. Poroshenko had secretly set up an offshore company after he was elected president. Vlad and other reporters working on the story knew that this detail alone would be worth looking into. So they kept digging, reading leaked emails in the database to see when the company was created. In the first or the second email, uh, we saw that the company was set on August 21st. We both realized that the registration of the company was taking place during one of the most dramatic and tragic phases of the war that was taking place in our country. Poroshenko was registering offshore company during one of the worst, most difficult stages of the war in Ukraine. In case you don't have a doctorate in modern Ukrainian history, Here's a recap of what was going on. In 2013, before Brexit ever seemed possible, the European Union looked like it would keep expanding. Many Ukrainians wanted closer ties to the EU, and the president at the time, a guy named Viktor Yanukovych, agreed. Until he didn't. Out of the blue, Yanukovych said Ukraine would instead forge closer ties with Russia. This did not go over well. Ukrainians stormed the main square in Kiev. Yanukovych fled. Russia took over Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, and Ukrainians elected a new president, a rich man who promised to usher in a new era of democracy. That man was Petro Poroshenko. And during a period when the Ukrainian army was suffering some of its worst casualties, 
Poroshenko's name was popping up on documents establishing an offshore company. To Vlad, this context was an integral part of the story. He compared the situation to two big moments from U.S. history. Imagine, he said, if during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy would be setting up companies in Bermuda, I mean, probably it would be a pretty huge story in the States. Think about how the story, how President Bush kept reading book for kids after he heard about 9-11. It was a pretty big story in the States. You could also say that it was pretty sensationalized. Vlad and several colleagues spent months investigating. It was tricky coordinating their work because they wouldn't discuss the investigation by phone or Skype or email. Besides the use of one encrypted app, they would only talk about it in person. And those in-person meetings couldn't just happen at the neighborhood bar. Once it was Istanbul, once it was Bucharest, I was moved out of the country about three months before publishing. It would be wrong for me to say that it was for security reasons, but we just, our headquarters in, is in Sarajevo. OCCRP is headquartered in Sarajevo. So there was a decision that to, to have as many editors in po as possible in one place. In order to protect the journalists still in Ukraine, Vlad and several others outside the country were the ones to submit an interview request to the president. No response. Then they submitted all of their questions in writing to the president and eventually got this. Contact my lawyers, which was also disappointing because all the way I was thinking, man, there should be like a proper explanation to this. It cannot really be happening. There should be like a very logical and proper explanation. But the president never, never actually said anything. The story launched in April 2016 and there was an immediate explosive reaction throughout the country. Ukrainians were not pleased. In mid-May, I think, there was a public opinion poll. And the question was, in the, in the aftermath of the Panama Papers stories, what do you think should the president of Ukraine do? And almost 50% of the respondents said that he should resign uh, unconditionally. There was also immediate pushback. There were many people coming out of nowhere, experts, with pretty much the same message, saying that we got it wrong, that the president has his assets in blind trust, etc., etc. So they would dispute the story in quite hostile manner. It was probably the first case in modern Ukrainian history of orchestrated black PR attacks on the journalists who, who investigated the president. I mean, it didn't really happen before. Some critics said they got the story wrong, that the president had never moved any money offshore. Vlad and his colleagues were able to prove otherwise with another leaked document. But a lot of the criticism wasn't so much about the facts of the investigation, but about the way those facts were presented. In the version of the story broadcast on TV, details about the president creating an offshore company were accompanied by footage of the war that was happening at the same time. 
And just like readers in Panama were distracted by the name Panama Papers, many people in Ukraine could not get past the war footage. I strongly believe that the war context made the actions of the president way, way worse. But it, made, it also made us targets to this criticism. There was a meeting of so-called independent media council, which nobody heard about before. And they actually made a decision that we violated ethical standards by telling the story in such a way, by linking presidents of shore business to, to the war situation in the country. Those criticisms were not accompanied by any actual legal repercussions. Nobody sued them. Nobody fined them. It was just one of the tools to promote the opinion that the story was so grossly in violation of ethical standard, exploiting the war footage, that it's not worth taking it seriously. The war is such a painful subject that to watch it juxtaposed with president corruption is painful for people. I think that's the real reason of why it happened. Vlad watched the final version of the broadcast again right before we Skyped. By and large, he said, he stood by the editorial decisions they made. But there was one thing he said they could have done differently. Maybe it would make sense if the movie would have a second edit by a person who is not from Ukraine. Probably it, if the final cut would be done by a person living outside of the country and not so emotionally, emotionally attached and not so emotionally involved into current events, it would look less emotional and dramatic. This is probably the only thing. The investigation also helped reveal a special loophole in Ukraine's government. After the revolution, the government established a special anti-corruption bureau, and a lot of Ukrainians thought this would be a silver bullet to combat state corruption. Except it wasn't. It turned out the anti-corruption bureau was legally blocked from investigating the president. For many people, it was like, they were brought back to the earth and they realized that in many ways the new government is repeating what the old government was doing. Since the story broke, several investigations have launched targeting the president's inner circle. My main hope is that people don't get frustrated and tired and indifferent and that people won't give up. They won't say that we really should just stop being involved in how the country is operating because it just there is just no use. That's my main hope. I just think that people will not stop caring about what's going on in their country. He also had some very specific advice for journalists in other countries wanting to investigate their own leaders. There are very few countries in the world when investigating the current president of your country will be easy and will not be extremely stressful uh, for you personally. I don't think there is any country where you will emerge like a hero the next day. That would be my advice, to expect that the whole state machine will be targeted at you. If there is something to 
dig on you, it will be dug up. If there is something to uncover about you, it will be uncovered. So I would advise to be aware of this. It, it's not gonna be easy. I wouldn't say it's a fair deal or not, but probably it's the best to look at it this way. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you can find links to an English translation of one of La Prensa's articles, as well as the broadcast Vlad was talking about. That broadcast has English subtitles. If you're a fan of the show, you can help us reach new audiences by writing a review or sending your friends a link to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson. Radio. Podcast. Podcast.